0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.
1: Hello, and welcome to the world today. It is Thursday, the 1st of February. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, Medicare turns 40. Is it still fit for purpose as health costs rise? And you should be so lucky, despite the minuscule chance of winning, millions of Australians are in the draw for tonight's $200 million jackpot. I did buy tickets.
2: Do you often buy a lot of tickets?
3: I do not, but today's my birthday and <laughs> it's the $200 million tonight. Your chances of winning are infinitesimally small to the point that they're almost zero. So that dream is just that.
1: Today, as the political battle heats up over the federal government's overhaul of the stage three tax cuts, the Prime Minister is talking down the prospect of doing a deal with the Greens to get it through Parliament. Under Labor's changes, most Australians will get a larger tax cut from July 1st rather than the original policy legislated by the coalition. Now, the Albanese government is staring down demands from some members of the crossbench over whether it will support the changes. Gavin Coote reports.
4: The Albanese government's been putting the hard sell on its Stage 3 tax cut changes, with both the Prime Minister and Treasurer on a media blitz in marginal seats.
5: So we want people to earn more and we want them to keep more of what they earn.
4: Anthony Albanese was again pitching his message at Middle Australia during a visit to the Labor-held seat of Robertson on the New South Wales Central Coast this morning. But he also has his fellow parliamentarians to convince. The opposition is yet to say whether it'll support the changes and questions whether it'll provide any actual relief in the cost of living crunch. Deputy Liberal Leader Susan Lee was today brandishing a $20 note claiming there'll be little extra money for most taxpayers.
6: Not even $20 in some cases. This is what you can expect a week under this Prime Minister's tax changes. Meanwhile, this represents what your rents just in Sydney are going up a week, $150. $20 being given to you under these proposed tax changes, your rent alone going up $150. And that's just rent. Think about groceries, think about power prices, think about insurances, think about going back to school and all of the costs that that
4: entails. If the government doesn't get the Coalition's backing, it'll need to get it from the crossbench and Greens. But the Greens argue the reshaped cuts are still unfair, citing analysis from the Independent Parliamentary Budget Office showing the lowest 40% of income earners will receive just 9% of the benefits from the changes. The Prime Minister isn't
5: saying whether he'll consider
4: some of the Greens' requests, like adding dental to Medicare.
5: We'll put this plan forward uh, on its merits. And people in the House of Representatives and the Senate uh, can determine their view as to whether they want to provide increased support to low and middle income earners or not. We'll always look at budget measures, but what we won't be doing is uh, trading across different issues. We're focused on this. This stands on its merits. One
4: crossbencher who's applauded Labor's shift on the cuts is Independent Di Lee, who represents much of Sydney's outer southwest, where the average weekly income is about $550. But she's told Sky News she'll need more details before signing up.
7: Because, obviously, in in Fowler, uh, in our community, the cost of uh, energy has gone up, uh, rent has gone up, right. grocery the prices have gone up. So, you know, how... how the announcement of this proposed state three tax cut, how would that alleviate those factors? So how will these stage tax cut proposed changes will really alleviate all of those other factors? We're yet to
4: see. And while it's been buoyed by new figures yesterday showing inflation hit a two-year low in the December quarter, the government acknowledges there's still a lot of cost of living pain for voters. Finance Minister Katie Gallagher insists the tax cut changes will make a difference and is hoping it's a message the other parties will heed.
6: You know, we are focused on getting our tax plan through, obviously there's a lot of discussions to be had but we want the, we've carefully considered the proposal, we've looked at it from an inflation point of view, we've looked at it from the fact that uh, 84% of people will get a bigger tax cut so we think at the end of the day when the vote uh, is put before the chamber, the Senate chamber, uh, that senators will support it because it's a very important package to ease those cost of
1: living pressures on Australians. That's Finance Minister Katie Gallagher ending that report from Gavin Cooch. Well, as we've heard, the federal government is now looking to the independents and minor parties to support its reform of the stage three tax cuts. Helen Haynes is the federal independent member for Indi in regional Victoria, and she says the tax cuts must benefit lower income earners.
0: Well, I think I would begin by saying that I've maintained my opposition to the stage three tax cuts since they were introduced by Prime Minister Morrison. I've been consistent on that. Uh, I think that the cuts as they stand currently legislated uh, obviously benefit high income earners the most uh, and I represent an electorate that's one of the 20 electorates that would receive the least amount of benefit from from the stage three tax cuts. So uh, this proposition is something that I have uh, have real uh, interest in and I will be looking at it very, very closely when we get the legislation.
1: We, we're still waiting on that legislation, but the outlines and the position that's been put forward by Labor, the softening of these cuts, is that something that's appealing to you or you're still waiting to see?
0: Um, It is appealing to me. Uh, Again, I emphasise that I I represent constituency that were uh, not going to see uh, benefit from stage three tax cuts. But beyond my own electorate, I think that uh, right from the moment that they were legislated by Prime Minister Morrison in the previous parliament, I saw problems with these and I was opposed to them. So uh, I'm I'm very, very interested now in uh, taking very seriously what the new government are proposing.
1: Do you think that more measures need to be put in place, especially uh, for people who are receiving income support, such as uh, those who are on JobSeeker or other Centrelink payments? People who are doing it really tough
0: on fixed income from uh, job seeker, from Centrelink payments more broadly, uh, again, I'm on the record, uh, have been for a very, very long time that we need to be lifting the rate uh, of support for those people. Uh, things like tax cuts don't have an impact, uh, a positive impact for them.
1: When deals are done to try and get these changes put through, do you think that other issues should be put off the table or is it a fair to be pursuing other issues? issues with the government in exchange for support for these cuts?
0: We need to be a grown-up nation when it comes to revenue and expenditure. Uh, We're a nation with an ageing population. We're a nation that holds high value on high quality aged care, high quality disability care. Um, we want to have a nation that is inclusive, inclusive of people, I believe, uh, in order to do that, we need to look thoroughly right across, uh, our, our taxation system. We need to look at how we generate revenue beyond, uh, looking just at income tax. So I think, uh, All things should be on the table and and I'd like to see uh, a debate in Australia that moved beyond uh, political teams, uh, that actually moved into the space of looking at the future of the nation and doing the best we can by all people in a sustainable way through uh, sensible taxation reform across the board.
1: The proposed changes to the stage three tax cuts, do you view that as a broken promise by the Prime Minister and the government?
0: Look, I I think the Prime Minister could have brought us into his confidence a little earlier than he did. Uh, He was categorical right up until Christmas time that uh, nothing was going to change in regard to the promise he'd made about the Morrison Stage 3 tax cuts. Uh, I understand the politics of that, but I do think uh, we have a nation that is capable of listening to a Prime Minister explain why he needs to do things differently. So I think he could have uh, brought us into his confidence a little earlier on that.
1: That's uh, Helen Haynes, the independent member for Indi. (music) This is The World Today. Medicare is turning 40 today. The universal healthcare scheme has made it cheaper to see a doctor, but many experts say there's much more that can be done to keep up with Australia's changing needs. As our population ages, there'll be a whole new set of challenges on the way. Angus Randall reports.
8: Any day now you will receive this envelope. Inside is your Medicare enrolment form and a brochure explaining how Medicare will provide every permanent resident with basic health insurance.
9: 40 years ago, then-Prime Minister Bob Hawke was filling out his first Medicare form and urging all Australians to do the same.
5: Then every Australian,
9: from newborn babe to Prime Minister, can share in the cheapest, simplest and fairest health insurance scheme Australia's ever had. On the 40th anniversary of Medicare, Anthony Albanese says the scheme has become an important pillar of Australia's health system.
5: A great legacy of the government a great legacy of the Labor Party.
9: Medicare has always been seen as a vote winner, but it's faced a series of challenges. Among them, the rising cost of healthcare and a decline in bulk billing. Last year, the government announced a $3.5 billion boost to bulk billing in a bid to turn things around. Today, Health Minister Mark Butler revealed 360,000 extra bulk bill appointments were claimed in November and December last year, meaning patients received their care for free.
8: But I hope that this is the beginning of a real turnaround in bulk billing behaviour, because for Labor, bulk billing is the beating heart of Medicare.
9: Health economist Stephen Duckett is an honorary professor at the University of Melbourne. He says a healthcare system that's controlled and funded by politicians will always struggle to be consistent.
5: I think the underlying problem is that, to some extent, the rebates are entirely set at political whim. That is, uh, over the last decade, there's been a freeze in the rebates, and so they became out of whack with the cost of, of providing services and so I think one of the things that has to happen into the future is we take the setting of rebates out of the hands of politicians.
9: Today marks an opportunity to look forward as well as back. Professor Steve Robson is the president of the Australian Medical Association. He was a medical student when Medicare was brought in and he's seen how Australians' medical needs have changed in the decades since.
2: We see large numbers of patients with chronic conditions. We've had new technologies introduced to help patients and we have new and comprehensive ways of providing medical treatment. The way Medicare was set up was for a different era.
9: Medicare covers a range of ailments except anything inside your mouth. Most Australians receive no government support for dental. Stephen Duckett hopes that by the 50th anniversary, there will be universal dental coverage.
5: Dental is not doable tomorrow. We just don't have enough staff right now. Um, If we expanded uh, public coverage. There a lot of people who aren't getting dental care. There's millions of Australians who miss out on dental care because of cost. They would now get dental care. As a result of getting dental care, their overall physical health would be better. They might go into employment. So there's a lot of benefits from doing this, but we can't do it tomorrow because there's, it's such a, a big... Impost. But so then what we've got to say is what is our plan for doing it over the next 10 years as the economy grows, as the country gets wealthier? We should be allocating more money to this important uh, area.
9: The Prime Minister will officially mark the anniversary when Parliament resumes next week with a travelling exhibition into Medicare's history.
1: It's Angus Randall there. Kids and adults who suffer concussion when playing community sport will be benched for at least 21 days in a bid to stop long-term health issues. The new Australian Institute of Sport rules also say that players who show symptoms of concussion shouldn't train for two weeks either. The move has been welcomed by experts and sporting bodies, but will community clubs have enough resources to police the change? Stephanie Smale takes a look.
6: Evidence has been mounting for years that there's a real risk a concussion could lead to a long-term serious injury. The CEO of Sports Medicine Australia, Jamie Crane, explains how the new guidelines will work to try to reduce that risk.
2: If in doubt, sit them out. So in practice, if people see, you know, a head knock and, and there's a suspected concussion, then you know the intention here is that that player is removed uh, for full assessment. And if indeed a concussion is confirmed, what we're looking for is 14 days symptom-free before that player can uh, return to training and then 21 days before they can return to full uh, competitive sport. Sports
6: do currently have a broad range of concussion rules and most require players spend 12 days off the field. The Australian Institute of Sports Chief Medical Officer Dr David Hughes concedes keeping players away from training and competition for weeks could be tough. But he says the new guidelines will help all sporting bodies to understand what needs to change.
4: Cultural change is difficult, but it's necessary, and we have to keep moving forward uh, with education of everybody uh, involved in youth and community sport. I do think it's shifting.
6: The Australian Institute of Sport's new guidelines follow a Senate inquiry into concussions and repeated head trauma in contact sports. And there's already growing concern about the risk of concussion in community sport. But are clubs equipped to police these new guidelines? Clifford Butler is an osteopath and safety officer at the Williamstown Junior Football Club in Melbourne.
8: I think it's a step in the right direction, 100%.
6: Is it hard to police symptoms of concussion and then make sure players do stay off the field?
8: 100%, and and that's the hardest thing. We're lucky we're able to use some objective eye-tracking technology to indicate brain health and then therefore we can diagnose concussion and remove that subjectivity to it but symptoms often go away before the brain healing has fully occurred. And we know that children need to have longer away from the game and longer, um, more of a rest period, usually up to 30 days. Is
6: it likely that community sports clubs across the board are going to need more resources to police rules like these?
8: No, look, I think that these rules actually mean that you can get away with less resources. I mean, obviously last year... We didn't have this recommendation. It wasn't as clear as as this is. So we've had to invest in technology. It's rather expensive. Whereas I think this just makes it very easy for even clubs, administrators, coaches, parents to be able to implement these concussion policies on pitch side.
6: And do you think there'll be any resistance?
8: Absolutely. I think that I can definitely see three weeks is a long time in a 14-week season for children. So I can imagine there may be some resistance from, from parents or even clubs, especially around finals time, we've found that. But um, for me, early intervention and early management often results in that 21-day period being all they need to do. When players have ignored advice or not reported their symptoms and had a secondary impact, they're often off for a lot longer. So I think that the old adage of stitching time saves nine is really important here.
6: The Australian Institute of Sport doesn't have powers to regulate the changes, but the national bodies of more than 30 sports have indicated
1: they will adopt the new guidelines. That's Stephanie Smale there. Australian officials have met with the head of the United Nations in New York days after suspending funding to the humanitarian relief and works agency known as UNRWA. The UN is calling on several countries to reinstate funding to ensure the agency's life-saving work can continue. But Israel wants it shut down entirely. Alexandra Humphreys reports.
7: In this Khan Yunus hospital, the floor is smeared with blood and covered in medical waste. Instruments can't be properly sterilised... Gauze has to be reused and disease is spreading. Maha Abu Masood's daughter is a patient in the hospital. Basically, the hospital completely collapsed. No doctors at all, nor
0: nurses. Me, for example, my daughter has been wounded for a while now and when we come asking for treatment, sometimes they tell us it's available and other times it's not.
7: The humanitarian situation in Gaza remains dire. It's hell. It, there's no way, no, no other word to describe it but hell. Bushra Khalidi is Oxfam's policy lead in the West Bank. Several of her family members have been displaced inside Gaza multiple times. It's winter. There's no clean water. There's no electricity. There's basically one meal a day, which is soup. Normally, support would be provided by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA. But the future of that aid is under a cloud, after several nations, including Australia, the United States and United Kingdom, paused funding. Following allegations, some of the agency's staff were involved in the October 7 terrorist attacks. It's the arm, the main arm of the United Nations in aid delivery. Most of the Accused staff have been terminated and an investigation is underway. Australian officials have been communicating with both UNRWA and the United Nations and have now met with UN boss Antonio Guterres in New York alongside about 30 other donor countries. It's not clear what requirements must be met for funding to be reinstated. Bushra Khalidi says other organisations like Oxfam can't just step in and fill the gap. We have 33 staff in Gaza. We're talking about 13,000 staff of UNRWA. Of course not. We we don't have that capacity. Israel argues the problems inside UNRWA run deep. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu wants it replaced entirely.
0: UNRWA is totally infiltrated with Hamas. It has been in the service of Hamas and its schools and in many other things. I say this with great regret because we hoped that there would be uh, an objective and constructive body to offer aid. We need such a a body today. In Gaza, the UNRWA is not that body. It has to be replaced by some organization or organizations that will do that job.
7: United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres was horrified by the allegations, but he's warning of catastrophic consequences if funding is not restored.
2: UNRWA is the backbone of all humanitarian response in Gaza. The humanitarian system in Gaza is collapsing. I'm extremely concerned by the inhumane conditions faced by Gaza's 2.2 million people.
7: US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has now met with United Nations Senior Humanitarian and Reconstruction Coordinator for Gaza, Sigrid Karg, promising humanitarian assistance will reach those who need it.
8: Uh, The United Nations remains an essential and vital partner. At the same time, uh, we have to work through the terrible allegations uh, that have been uh, raised with regard to some unruly. Oh, personnel.
7: Anthony Blinken is set to return to the Middle East this week on his fifth diplomatic mission since the war began. It comes amid ongoing talks over a possible ceasefire.
1: That's Alexandra Humphreys there. Finally today, the prospect of winning $200 million is luring a huge number of Australians to buy a lotto ticket today, with the biggest jackpot in the country's history up for grabs. But of course, the chances of winning are extremely low. So what drives us to hand over our hard-earned money to take a gamble? David Sparks has more.
2: On a poster outside this small business selling lotto tickets, the words 200 million are pretty hard to miss. There's not a queue, but people are wandering in to buy their chance at a life-changing jackpot.
3: It is a lot of money and I can help a lot of people. That's the whole thing because I'm coming to the end of my life and it would be lovely to help my family and all the other people that need help.
2: You realise your chances are very slim. I
3: do but somebody's got to be there to get that (laughs) number and if you're not in it that you've got no
8: chance.
2: (laughs) This is being spruiked as the biggest jackpot in Australian history. While some people are regular buyers of lottery tickets, there are others who almost never buy them but have decided to give it a go. Did you buy a ticket?
3: I did buy a ticket.
2: Do you often buy lotto of tickets?
3: I do not, but today is my birthday and <laughs> it's the 200 million tonight, so I'm feeling like maybe it should be, you know? Yeah. Written in the well, stars.
2: Well, like how many times a year do you think you buy a lotto ticket?
3: Once or twice. So I it's would
2: very say. rare. It's pretty very rare.
3: rare. Very rare.
2: You, you know obviously your chances are slim.
3: Yes, that's right. But But it's my birthday, so.
2: (laughs) So what's going through our minds when we decide to buy or not to buy a lottery ticket? Professor Sally Gainsbury is an expert on the psychology of gambling at the University of Sydney.
3: And the real bonus of lotteries is that it affords you the dream, that period of time where you can imagine what could be. However, what's really important is to know that your chances of winning are infinitesimally small to the point that they're almost zero. So that dream is just that. And it's essential people only spend money they can afford to on the lottery.
2: You have studied and researched a lot problem gambling and the damage caused by problem gambling. Uh, to what extent is this can we link this to problem gambling or or is it because i think most australians think of it as quite separate from the types of gambling that become damaging
3: a lot of people don't actually even consider, consider lottery a form of gambling. However, it is important to understand that although lottery isn't a significant cause of problem gambling, many people who do gamble problematically include lottery tickets in what they're doing. It's certainly very possible to buy more lottery tickets than affordable because if you are on a low income, then spending a, you know any real amount of money on something like lottery when there's really no likelihood that it's going to result in anything is contributing to your economic losses and our financial uh, you know
2: well-being you have a psychology background maybe I could dig a bit deeper in in what goes on in our brains in terms of hope you know as you say infinitesimal chances does logic go out the window I, I don't mean that in a bad sense but does, does something weird happen in our brains?
3: It is true that when people gamble, they're thinking differently. So we can have people who have studied statistics who understand the chances of winning, but when what we call the, the hot cognitions take over or the emotional part, we're not thinking clearly, we're not making sound, rational decisions, we're making emotionally-driven or irrationally-driven decisions, thinking, well, you know, I still have an opportunity.
2: If you or someone you know needs help, you can call the National Gambling Helpline on one 858 David Sparks. And that's all from the world
1: today, team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe.
6: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Come July, we're all set to get a tax break and lower and middle income earners will be getting a bit more now after the government's rejig of the stage three cuts. Does that really make our tax system any fairer? Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC
8: Listener.